This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget you can listen to my Times Radio show live, Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. But here on the podcast, we always bring you the best bits coming up today. What do Queen Victoria, Charles Dickens and Arthur Conan Doyle all have in common? They wrote letters to the Times which changed Britain, or at least tried to. We dip into the post-bag archive to see some of the biggest names who uh, wrote letters and then rewrote history. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning where we take a look at what's going on in the news. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Manvi Rana, host of the Times' Story of Our Times podcast. Hi, Manvi. Hello. Nice to have you with us. And Jimmy McLaughlin, former business advisor at Number 10. Morning, Jimmy. Morning, Matt. Uh, let's start then with this sort of the big economic story. AstraZeneca, the big, obviously, pharma company, has decided to build its new £320 million factory in the Republic of Ireland uh, because of its low tax uh, environment, I suppose is the right word, which means Britain has missed out. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, uh, the last few minutes have been talking and said, we're disappointed we lost out this time. We agree with the fundamental case that they're making, which we need our business taxation to be more competitive and we want to bring business taxes down. But the only tax cuts we won't consider are ones that are funded by borrowing because that's not a real tax cut. Uh, Jimmy, I, I think we know what he's getting at there. I think that's very much the Liz Truss approach to unfunded tax cuts. But this, I suppose, is a real tangible example of, of actually the problem that Liz Truss was trying to sort of put her finger on. Yes, I think it's true. What I would say about these decisions is there's inevitably a bit of a lag time with them, right? This will be something that AstraZeneca has been considering for the last year. And when you look at what the UK has been through in the last year, there aren't many reasons to back it. I also think the part of the problem with the taxation that the UK has is that when it comes to corporate taxation, we've had sort of three different promises of what it's going to be over the last 18 months to two years. And that's really hard as a business to kind of plan for. Like you'd almost rather a higher tax 
tax that is stable than one that is lower and kind of frequently changes. So I also think there's a bit of a problem here in terms of the constant changing of the business secretary who would be the point person for the CEO of AstraZeneca. We need more stability in our politics to handle things like this. I think what Rishi Sunak did earlier in the week in terms of creating a science dedicated department is actually a good step in the right direction for this. But again, that will take a while for that to kind of feed through into the decision making. And take us in inside government how this actually works. Jimmy, you business advisor in number 10. But then I suppose there's this constant tension, isn't there? Or, well, I don't know, it, from, certainly from the outside, it seems like there is, about having people in politics who are too close to business, cozying up to business, offering sweeteners to business and so on. But ultimately, there's a race on here, there's a battle on between Britain and Ireland, and Ireland's won this one. So, you know, we actually want politicians and the government to be working with business so that they come here and, and invest and create jobs here. Yeah, absolutely. So we see ourselves as a world leader in, in life sciences. So this this is a big story and it is a worrying sign on that. When I was in number 10, it was particularly around Brexit and there were challenges that we had in terms of there was only so much we could say in public about Brexit. And actually, that's where the role of advisors and secretaries of state meeting uh, these business leaders is important because you can kind of flesh out more of what you're trying to do that you can't do in, in public. And that would also be true in the case of Rishi Sunak's advisors now as well. And, you know, but again, he's not been in post long to have kind of built up those relationships with people. So you're right that it's a kind of continually ongoing process, but you can imagine the CEO of AstraZeneca at the moment sort of, you know, being told that it's another new business secretary on the line from the UK and in thinking, look, I've only got 10% of my workforce in the United Kingdom. I don't want or need to have to speak to any business secretary every 10 months. Um, the other thing that made me uh, think of this, Manveen, and actually the point that Jimmy's mm. making about the, the chopping and changes, yesterday, West Streeting uh, was on, and we were talking about you know how the pay disputes in the NHS have gone on for so long. And it's, it's not unrelated to the fact that there were four different health secretaries last year. I mean, albeit one of them was the same twice. But yeah. um, if you keep chopping and changing the personnel, they're not getting on with the day job. Things sort of fall by the wayside. They get put off, and then suddenly, you know, we get overtaken by other people who've, who've not gone through all that turmoil. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, part of this is about the the chaos of of recent government. Um, I think Jimmy's right. People want to be able to plan. So even if you are going to have a higher corporation tax, I think that makes absolute sense. You need to know where it's going to be. I also think, though, this story is fascinating because it feels like it's a bit of a, a Rorschach test where you've got sort of people responding to it in very different ways. You've sort of got the people who are on the Liz Trust side of the tax argument sort of immediately saying, here's evidence. We were right all along. Lower taxes or you're going to lose business. But you know, if you actually go back and look at what AstraZeneca said about why they're leaving, uh, you know, they also cited green energy, for example. But in you know, in the in the Venn diagram of our politics, we don't have many people who want lower taxes and green energy, so they're sort of skipping over that part. But I, you know, I think actually this goes down to a, a much more ser- serious problem if we are looking at life sciences and we want to be this life sciences superpower. A number of companies like AstraZeneca have complained about this. It's going to sound very boring, but it's something called the V-Pass system, um, which is about a lot of these sort of pharmaceutical companies having to give money back to the NHS. It's voluntary. And, you know, in the last few months, we've seen two of the big American companies pull out of it already. Um, It's just set at a rate at the moment where they're having to hand over billions to the NHS at the end of the year. And they don't particularly want to be doing that. And I think, you know, there's probably a, a renegotiation that needs to be done there, which is much more likely to keep big pharma in the UK. But nobody's really talking about that. It's it's much easier to go with, with the tax headline. 
And is that do you, is that your reading as well, Jimmy? There's more to this than because obviously, clearly, as Bavi was saying, the people who want low lower taxes will seize on this and say, "Oh, look, if only we'd had that." But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Oh, it completely is, right? I mean, one of the great examples of this during my time at Number 10 was Unilever announcing that they were going to kind of consolidate their head office um, over in the European Union instead of the UK. And literally, sort of the newspapers interpreted it as a snub or actually a good thing for Brexit Britain. It was quite remarkable. And of course, Brexit was a factor, but it wasn't like the factor that sort of swung it. And so you get these things all the time, but it is a it, it does demonstrate that there is a tax problem and there are underlying problems as well. And it's also interesting sort of really reading the tea leaves on some of these things that the UK president of AstraZeneca has also followed up with quite strong comments about this because normally what would happen is a company would say, you know, this is potentially a one-off decision, etc. But actually they've doubled down on it quite hard when they've made this thing. It is a real shot across the UK economy's bows, I would say. We'll see uh, where this goes. No doubt, uh, Jeremy Hunt will face more calls to to do whatever people wanted him to do anyway. Uh, off the back of this, um, let's move on to uh, international uh, news then, and the the terrible fallout of the uh, earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, where now more than twenty thousand people have uh, been known to have died. There's an extraordinary uh, report uh, in the Times today and on, online by Hannah Lucinda Smith, the Turkey correspondent of the Times, talking about the city that uh, she was on breakfast as well this morning, talking about the city. She used to live in 10 years ago, Antakya, uh, and describing for us how it looks now. Actually, when I moved there, the old city was quite dilapidated, but you quite quickly it turned into this place of like bars and artists' cafes, um, restaurants. Yeah, not a lot of NGO workers flooded in over the years because of Syria. It was really this really special, you know, thriving city. But what we found yesterday is. I mean, it's almost indescribable. The city's not there anymore. Sorry. Oh, Hannah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hannah, do you want to do you want to take a moment? Sorry. No, do don't apologise. Look, no, I, I can completely understand. Look, we're going to give you a moment. We're going to give you a moment. Okay, we'll come back to you. We'll give you a moment. It's, it was an extraordinary moment, that. Um, and definitely, if you've got five minutes today, read Hannah's uh, report uh, for The Times. And Manvin, you've been you've done a special episode on, on the impact of the earthquake for the stories of our times as well. Yeah, we have. That, that's out today. Um, we actually spoke to, I mean, I, I agree, Hannah's piece is amazing. And, you know, Antakya, we don't talk about a lot of these places enough, but, you know, Antakya was this sort of beautiful, ancient place you know it's called Antioch in, in in antiquity it has some amazing sort of ruins and some great you know it's the sort of place we don't people don't visit for some reason but you know Gaziantep too which was at the heart of the earthquake you know had this beautiful 2000 year old castle that looked out over the city and it's all it's all gone and it's hideous you know this is the stuff we'll never get back but also the just the human cost of what's happened in Turkey and Syria is horrifying on, on the podcast today we spoke to Sarah Tour who's actually a, a columnist with the Times and she was visiting family in Turkey, in, in Mersin, which is just further down the coast. Um, and she was woken up by the earthquake. And, you know, she talks about just how terrifying it is to go through something like that. You know, how it seems to go on forever. And the effects on, on people who live through it afterwards, you know, it, it sort of, it, it, it has such a huge impact. Um, but, you know, she was lucky. Her area wasn't sort of destroyed in the way that so many of the other parts have been. 
And I think now, you know, where where the the death rate is just rising by the hour, it's horrifying to sort of see the the scenes of destruction in the area. And I, I think we're sort of starting to worry a bit about how geopolitics is now sort of starting to feed into the problem. So, you know, we've talked a lot about what's happened in Turkey. We're getting far fewer images from Syria, yeah. and there's far less help going into Syria because that you know the area that's been affected has been held by rebels um, since the this, this, the civil war. Um, so you know the government in Syria isn't helping them. If anything, they've 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 started bombing them despite the earthquakes, you know, you've got a humanitarian crisis and then the government sort of sees this as a great moment to try and seize back this area and, and you know, kill even more people and it's bombing it. Um, and it's really hard to get aid in because there's only one crossing from Turkey into that part of Syria. Uh, and Russia has has stopped other crossings from being used for, for a number of years now because they're, they're helping Syria in their fight against the rebels. And now, you know, it's a difficult moment. The UN is going to have to do something about it, but it keeps getting stumped by by Russia, who keeps voting to 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 stop effectively aid going through now, which is the effect it's having of only having this one crossing. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a really important point, that isn't it, Jimmy? And it may be. I mean, the UN it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's having a great sort of time of late. You know, it's for mainly because Russia is on the um, Security Council, but the the pressure it's possible that maybe the impact of this earthquake might might lead to a shift which so far hasn't happened, just because it might really focus international minds, because right around the world, people have been so shocked by, by the what's happened with the earthquake. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just horrific to kind of see the, the scenes that are taking place, and the international community does need to pull together on, on this one, because it's a, it's a human um, tragedy on just an, an enormous scale that we haven't really seen recently. And it's something there where people need to come together and it is surprising to kind of see the story force people um to kind of implement some change and Im- improve the situation and getting the aid through it's it's just so critically important yeah no absolutely um and there's loads loads of reporting uh, from the times uh, from uh, right across uh, turkey uh, i mean there's you know amidst all the the terrible news there's some amazing stories as well. There's a story uh, online right now. A 17-year-old rescued after four days uh, trapped in the rubble, was pulled alive, uh, said he survived by drinking his own urine. Uh, there's another story of how uh, um, a mother and a 10-year-old were brought out of the rubble alive, uh, rubble alive after 101 hours. A seven-year-old girl's been rescued in the uh, Hatay province. Um, so there are still, but obviously, as time goes on, there are far fewer of those stories. And um, uh, yeah, the overall death toll just keeps on uh, keeps on rising. So we'll keep across that still, I'm sure, for, for some time yet. Uh, Jimmy, Manvin, if, I, I, assume, I assume at some point you've both had a parking ticket. I haven't, but only because I don't drive. Oh, um, right, fine. I thought you'd teach us <laughs> If I did, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain I probably would have done, yeah. What about you, Jimmy? Yes, I've had the uh, the old one. Right, well, I'll tell you what you want to do. You want to become a councillor in Liverpool. Because apparently <laughs> uh, 14 Labour councillors in Liverpool have been dodging parking fines for years. Uh, Liam Thorpe is the political editor of the Liverpool Echo, who's been running this investigation for months, uh, and joins me now. Hi, Liam. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm oh, very good. I'm oh, very good. Tell us about this story then. What have uh, these councillors been doing and why, why just them? Oh, so it's, it's yes, it's, it's been a long and weary road to get to this point. It's uh, been about 16 months trying to trying to get this information out of the council using a variety of means, including uh, freedom of information requests and just sort of shouting at them to tell me what's going <laughs> on. 
Um, and uh, yeah, basically, I, I, I became aware um, about October time, 2021. There was a sort of bit of a disciplinary process going on at the council. You, you'll be aware that there's been a lot of a lot of issues at Liverpool Council in, in recent years. Um, and it, it, it came to mind. Some people kind of got in touch with me that that it, had, it transpired that for a number of years uh, there had been this sort of backdoor system where if elected members had got a parking ticket, uh, rather than going through the, the usual appeals process that you or I would have to go through, where you would put it in writing and challenge it and and, and, pos- and, and sort of go through that, that, that formal process, um, it was just being sort of written off and, and cancelled by, by by senior officers at the council. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I want to try and get to the bottom of this. I, I decided to cover a sort of five-year period, which is the same period that the recent um, inspection of the council looked into when all the problems were. Um, and yeah, it's been a long time coming, and we got the we got the results this week. And over that five year period, there was there was fourteen current and former elected members, some pretty senior figures as well, with a, a range of a range of numbers, uh, I would say, in the uh, in in those parking fines that were being written off. But I think what's really interesting about the sort of culture at the time is that th- despite sixteen months of investigations, the council could find no record of why any of these. Um, parking fines were rescinded, which suggests it was, you know, pretty much being done off the books, I would say. Um, and, and was it literally just because I'm a councillor, I could do what I like? Or did you have to like, was it because it was in connection to their work as a councillor? Um, was it all councillors? Uh, or was it, you know, or was it just as, I suppose you use the word dodgy as it sounds? It, it, it certainly wasn't all councillors, no. And as I said, there's only 14 in the in the five years that yeah. we looked at. There was, there, were, there, there did seem to be a pattern that it was, Quite often it was um, cabinet members or senior figures. Um, and yeah, we had sort of a range of excuses and explanations ranging from one person who said uh, is, is a relative had borrowed his car. I'm not sure why that helps things. Um, and one and quite a few people, yeah, saying they were at council meetings that ran over or they didn't know, you know, they didn't. And to be honest, the main excuse that people said, which I thought was pretty weak, was that we just thought this is how it was done. <laughs> uh, which, I thought was, which I thought was pretty mad, really, because if you're a, a very senior politician and you think that the, the right way to do this is to just hand your tickets over to an officer who will just get rid of them, then you need to have a rethink about how that's done, don't you? Manfred, this is incredible, isn't it? I mean, it, a, a, you know, all power to Liam's elbow for persevering with this. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, great, great, great proper local reporting. But... It's just a, it's just a bare phase. I'll just park the car. It'll be fine because I'll get them to get them cancel it later. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's shocking. Um, it's shocking that they thought that's just how things were done. But also, you know, these are the people as councillors who we expect to be living by the rules that they kind of helped to set. Uh, everyone else has to. And you think that's it's just the, the it's just such an affront to everything you'd want from a good politician. Um, but you know, Liverpool, as far as I know, has had pretty chronic problems. I think there's a real cultural problem there. You know, you sort of forget that the last mayor, I think, was actually arrested um, yep. while in office. Um, and and it, it, if anything, it's really reassuring that, you know, you've got the local reporting, which is shining a light on all of this stuff. And also it does feel like the, the new council and the new mayor are sort of trying to change the culture and trying to call this stuff out. Yeah, which... that's a really good point just to pick up on that because the reaction from the current leadership has been really really strong you know they've they've yeah. come out in, and said based on our investigation it exposes what was a, a deeply unacceptable culture at the time that was the words of the chief executive we've got you know the current mayor coming out and being deeply critical of it i think it's fair to say and i think it's important to say that this was over a period of time liverpool council is now slowly trying to get its house in order there is new leadership and i think it's important to be kind of 
bullish and transparent about this, but it still shouldn't have taken 16 months because <laughs> I've, I've, I've aged horribly in that. <laughs> now, there's also part of it being, to being political, party political for a moment, Jimmy. I can't help thinking, if this was Tories doing this, the Labour Party would be all over this. There's like one rule for us, one rule for everyone else. Maybe, maybe this is what happens when you basically have a one-party state in Liverpool and, you know, they sort of basically thought they could do what they like. Yes, well, I did see the point about opposition have been sort of you know going after this as well as, well as the local journalists and the opposition being the, the Lib Dems, which must be one of the few places they are in proper opposition uh, on local councils. But yeah, it's it's pretty shocking actually because it's one of these things in government where it you know integrity matters, and once you start passing it over at the beginning for something small like a parking fine, you think that's okay, but th- it does end up being a slippery slope. And the person, the former deputy mayor who'd had seventeen of these things, you know, that's it's just unacceptable that that is that that's happening. So credits to the to the local journalist for campaigning on it and and bringing it to light. Oh, I'd be fascinated just turned into a Liam Loving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. Carry on with this. <laughs> how did you, how did you did you get wind of this because there has been this cultural shift? Was it a sort of whistleblower who, who told you that this was going on, Liam, without asking you to give away your sources? Yeah, so obviously I, I can't do that. And uh, no, I mean it, there was it was linked to there was a number of disciplinary processes going on. People were being pushed out of the council, which was part of that culture change that they were trying to do. And during those processes, evidence of this kind of came to light. I was sort of tipped off about it, and that's when the, the process began. But yeah, it, it took a, it took a long, long time. A lot of a lot of trying to trying to force this out. And, and once we did get the results, you know, it was a pretty frantic couple of days trying to trying to piece it all together and, and, and get it ready for the story. But we're really pleased with how it's all gone. Well, I, I, I would congratulate you again, but I think we've done quite enough of that. Oh, go on, one, one more, one more. <laughs> Fine, well done, Liam. No, it's, it's terrific. It is terrific, uh, Liam. Really good to speak to you. Jimmy McGoughlin and Manveen Rana there. And of course, you can listen to Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast. From the Times, it's one story told in depth every day. Download, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts from. Right, up next, it's Letters That Change Britain. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. She rode upon it. talking about letters can you see can you see we're talking about letters so uh, what does queen victoria charles dickens and an anonymous prostitute all have in common now it's not the start of a joke but they've all written letters to the times which changed the country or at the very least uh, tried to so what we thought we'd do is dig into the archive uh, to look at some of the most incredible letters that have been written to the times over the years i'm delighted to be joined in the studio by andrew riley letters editor of the times hi andrew Nice. And Rose Wild, archive editor of the Times. Good morning. So, Andrew, you're in charge of the new letters, and Rose is in charge of the old ones. Is that is that, is that just about how it works? <laughs> Pretty accurate, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> At what point do they do they? How 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 old does a letter have to be before you're not interested? Uh, Twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. And when we're talking about letters being sent to the Times these days, how many actual letters do you get well, compared that, that, to emails? That's uh, quite easy to 
99 percent yeah but, you know if not more yeah I mean, it's dwindled now to a sort of handful a day and is it they uh, all from the same people no, but those some of them are. But admittedly, <laughs> some people will will write several times a day, thinking that give them more chance of getting in. It just irritates me. But, but anyway, bigger um, and bigger envelopes, <laughs> <laughs> big sort of stickers and stars. So, how many letters slash emails a day do you get into the Times? That is classified. Um, is it? But but um, it's several hundred. Yeah, you know, it does go up and down depending on on the news. Of know. course, yeah, and yeah. what provokes people into writing. Um, and why are the why do the letters all start with sir? Who's going to expect those? Do you know that? Uh, up till now, in its long history, the editor of the Times has always been a man. Yeah. And it, it, sig- it signals that it's a letter. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As, yeah that's just as when you're flicking through. An email, or and particularly, I suppose, if you're reading online, that's a sort of clearer, yeah. clearer sense of what you're reading. But, but doubtless, when a woman becomes editor, it will be madam. I, I can't see us sticking to Sir. What do the Sunday Times do when Emma Tucker was editor? Did they just drop it? They all don't have it at They all. don't have anything, yeah. and it's quite. We may drop it. I don't yeah. know. Mm. Well, let's not start a reshuffle. <laughs> that seems a bit beyond all of our stations. Right, so what we've got is you've, you've, you've picked out some letters from the archives and uh, we're going to just take them through them. So, Rose, you're kicking us off with a nice, set the bar nice and low, a letter to the Times from Queen Victoria. When's this from uh, and how did it come about before you, before you read a bit of it for us? She wrote it three years after the death of the of Prince Albert and she three or four years. She'd been, she'd been out of sight and people were getting a bit pissed off with not having any visible monarch. And some wag had posted a notice on the, the railings of Buckingham Palace saying, for sale. <laughs> and the it's Times... It's not would be done these days. <laughs> exactly. And the Times did a leader saying, you know, it's high time we actually had some action wow. from our Queen. And she wrote a letter to the editor which caused a terrible hoo-ha in the royal household. Her, her household thought this was... Lord Clarendon wrote to his wife saying, it's considered very in for a dig of the Queen to have written personally, but she insisted and had the letter delivered to the editor. So go on then, are you going to do... Do you do impre- I know uh, Andrew will definitely be doing impressions. Will you be doing impressions for us? <laughs> give, us a, give, us a, give us a flavour of this letter from Queen Victoria. An erroneous idea seems generally to prevail and has latterly found frequent expression in the newspapers that the Queen is about to resume the place in society which she occupied before her great affliction. That is, that she is about again to hold levees and drawing rooms in person and to appear as before at court balls, concerts, etc. Um, she's basically saying, you're wrong, and I'm not. <laughs> she's not going to. <laughs> She says the Queen will do what she can in the matter least trying to her health, strength and spirits to meet the loyal wishes of her subjects, to afford that support and countenance to society and to give that encouragement to trade which is desired of her. She, she wasn't having it. She wasn't about to go to parties again. But it was a, it was a useful and interesting letter to have run because it shows that she didn't get the point of royalty, which is basically that they have to be visible. Yeah, because they've got to be out there. What's the point? What's the point? The the country really aren't prepared to have them fanning about in palaces and castles and things. They want them. 
and what about the time? Why, why the times? Is it, do, do, do are the times, well, I mean, we would all agree with this, the Times letters page is very much the best on Fleet Street, but there's a particular relation between the royal family and the Times which meant that it was the Times well, they came to. Prince Albert hated the Times <laughs> he, because the Times was always critical of, yeah. you know, grand ideas and things that he wanted to get up to and he thought it was much too powerful. But it was the most powerful paper. And interesting about this letter, it doesn't start with Sir. Oh. It's, it's unique in that respect because the editor, when he got it, all handwritten with the Queen's underlinings and capital letters and everything else, he didn't put it on the letters page, he stuck it on the court page. Oh, and that's why it's in the third person, it's not in the first person. But it very much was in her hand. Do you get many letters from the from the king these days, Andrew? I've had one from Prince William. Have you? Yeah, <laughs> the, Earth, the Earth Shop Prince. Oh, OK. Not, not uh, complaint, not sort of taking issue with something that was in the league. No, no. I mean, you know, courtiers, Courtier, but, but yeah, not, yeah. Yeah. not as clear as that. Not as clear as that. I'll tell you what, let's move on then. Uh, and Andrew, you've got well, from, from royalty to, to literary... Uh, stars. Yeah, this is a letter from Charles Dickens uh, on the crowd at a public hanging. I think it's an absolutely fantastic letter. It's just like one of his novels. Um, the background to this is more than 30,000 people, uh, spectators, gathered outside Horsemonger Lane Jail in Southwark on the 13th of November 1849 to be entertained, there's no other word for it, by the public execution of the husband and wife Marie and Frederick Manning, who had murdered a wealthy friend for his money and buried him under the kitchen floor. Now, they were the first married couple to be publicly hanged since 1700 and the case became known as the Bermondsey Horror to which the nearest today would be that of Fred and Rose West, I think. Anyway, Dickens had rented a room overnight to be in situ and he watched it, watched the build-up all night and the next morning from a rooftop overlooking the jail and the following day wrote a furious letter to the Times describing the scenes he saw, describing the wickedness and levity of the immense crowd and calling for the Home Secretary, Sir George Grey, to ban the practice of public hangings and in future conduct them behind closed walls. Anyway, here's a, here's a snippet of it. It's quite a long snippet, but it's, as I say, it's fabulously rich uh, language. Sir, I was a witness at the execution of at Horsemonger Lane Jail this morning, I went there with the intention of observing the crowd gathered to behold it, and I had excellent opportunities of doing so at intervals all through the night and continuously from daybreak until after the spectacle was over. I don't address you on the subject with any intention of discussing the abstract question of capital punishment. I simply wish to turn this dreadful experience to some account for the general good by taking the readiest and most public means of adverting to an intimation given by Sir G. Gray in the last session of Parliament that the government might be induced to give its support to a measure making the infliction of capital punishment a private solemnity within the prison walls. I believe that a sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of the immense crowd collected at the execution this morning could be imagined by no man and could be presented in no heathen land under the sun. The horrors of the gibbet and of the crime which brought the wretched murderers to it faded in my mind before the atrocious bearing, looks and language of the assembled spectators. When I came upon the scene at midnight, the shrillness of the cries and the howls that were raised from time to time, denoting that they came from a concourse of boys and girls already assembled in the best places, made my blood run 
cold. As the night went on, screeching and laughing and yelling in strong chorus of, of parodies on Negro melodies with substitutions of Mrs. Manning for Susanna and the like were added to these. When the, dawn, when the day dawned, thieves, low prostitutes, ruffians and vagabonds of every kind flocked onto the ground with every variety of offensive and foul behaviour. Fightings, faintings, whistlings, imitations of punch, brutal jokes, tumultuous demonstrations of indecent delight when swooning women were dragged out of the crowd by the police with their dresses disordered, gave a new zest to the general entertainment. When the sun rose brightly, as it did, it gilded thousands upon thousands of upturned faces so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the very shape he wore and to shrink from himself as fashioned in the image of the devil. When the two miserable creatures who had attracted all this ghastly sight about them were turned quivering into the air... There was no more emotion, no more pity, no more thought that two immortal souls had gone to judgment, no more restraint in any of the previous obscenities than if, in the, than if the name of Christ had never been heard in this world and there were no belief among men but that they perished like the beasts. I do not believe that any community can prosper where such a scene of horror and demoralization as was enacted this morning outside that jail is presented at the very doors of good citizens. I remain so your faithful servant, Chelsea. I'm sorry it was so long. But it, I just think it's it so does, powerful. It, it, does, it, does, it's weird. it is like a Dickens novel. I suppose the big question is: Did it make? Did it work? It, did, did it? Did it change the policy on public executions? Well, I looked into this, and the interesting thing is, it was another nineteen years before um, executions in public were banned. But uh, to that, I just compared it to William Wilberforce. He spent more than twenty years campaigning yeah. against the slave trade. So I think, and it, and it did have an impact. It would have been maybe forty years if he hadn't. Yeah. Absolutely, but it's so but it's so powerful. And there's a le- your next letter, Rose, has got a, a link to Charles Dickens, doesn't it? Yes, there was a moral panic in the in the middle years of the nineteenth century about prostitutes and and contagious diseases. The Contagious Diseases Act was brought in in 1858 and was supposed to control uh, women prowling the streets and infecting men as it was seen at the time. And Dickens <laughs> Dickens read a letter in the Times, which was published, signed an unfortunate. It was a letter f- apparently from a prostitute. And um, Dickens and his friend Angela Burdett Coots, who was a philanthropist, very rich woman, who'd set up a house for fallen women in West London wrote to the editor to say could they be put in touch with the woman who'd written this letter because they thought they might be able to save her. And um, the archivists of the Times have the correspondence in their possession. Um, Unfortunately, Angela Badek-Coots hadn't read to the end of the letter when she said, this person is perfect for our mission. And after a few days, Dickens wrote a second letter to the editor saying... Um, I'm afraid when she got to the end of the second column, because it is a very long letter, she decided that she didn't want to get involved (laughs) with this person because, as it happens, the letter is entirely unrepentant. It is saying the message, as usual, is it's the men who have the pleasure and the, the women who get the blame. She is campaigning against a law that was going to come in to make street prostitution illegal. I'll read a bit of it. Um, Sir, 
Certain persons have, as you know, commenced a crusade against London prostitutes. And if one of the abandoned sisterhood may presume to address you, grant me your attention. We need not be told of our ruin and degradation because we never fall without being alive to the fact. A woman seduced may forgive her wrongs and outlive her sense of shame. Her conscience may harden and her very memory may sleep, but she never need be reminded of her real condition. It is impossible for her to forget what she is. Society will not permit her to do so. It is one thing to put down a nuisance. It is another to persecute individuals. There is a scandalous eyesore and annoyance existing. Remove it. But if those excellent men imagine that by clearing the thoroughfares of professed wretches like me, they will advance one step in the cause of virtue, they're gravely mistaken. She ends up by saying, look, we're useful. We're a deterrent to moral women. And she says at the end, pray, sir, think of this and tell those gentlemen whose speeches I read to act upon it. They may be husbands and fathers, as are many of all degrees who visit us, and I can allow for their parental solicitude. But if they be Christians, they will imitate one who said, go and sin no more, and not move on anywhere, anywhere, out of the world. She signs it, one more unfortunate. P.S., I cannot give you my name, having so disgraced it, nor my address, as it is disreputable. I mean, it's an incredible letter, uh, and it gives a real insight into the, I suppose, the politics of the time as well, the, the, and the way that, that they were being viewed and judged. Yes. And, and as a result, came to see herself. The editor of the Times, in correspondence with Dickens, said it's an extraordinary letter. He compared it with Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. He said, I haven't read anything so well written. Yeah. And I suppose, it, yeah, it really captures, yeah, it, it, it takes you right there because you know it's a real person and not a, a novel. Exactly. And in yeah. a sense, it's very modern. Yeah. It, it yeah, is the language, you saying really just it. Yeah, yeah. stop picking on us women. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, where are we going next? We are going to the South Pole with Ernest Shackleton. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, a fabulous letter, very short, from Ernest Shackleton, written and published in the Times on the 29th of December 1913. Now, anyone who's a fan of Shackleton, which there will be millions of people, will know that's quite shortly before he launched the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. But he did so, the announcement, in a letter to the Times. It's very short, I'll give you to it. Here we go. Sir, it's been an open, open secret for some time past that I have been desirous of leading another expedition to the South Polar regions. I am glad now to be able to state that, through the generosity of a friend, I can announce that an expedition will start next year with the object of crossing the South Polar continent from sea to sea. I have taken the liberty of calling the expedition the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition because I feel that not only the people of these islands, but our kinsmen in all the lands under the Union Jack will be willing to assist towards the carrying out of the full programme of exploration to which my comrades and myself are pledged. Yours sincerely, Ernest Shackleton, New Burlington Street, London West. Now, um, this is fabulous because there have been speculation for years about his third expedition. He was in his first one was uh, under Captain Scott in 1901. Uh, obviously, Scott died in 1912. The second time Shackleton ventured south, he led his own expedition in the Nimrod in 1907, coming back two years later and getting to within 100 miles of the South Pole, but not actually getting there. Now, this one obviously was going to cross the whole the whole continent, uh, and it's the, it's it's the it's the famous tale which we all know of how he became stranded 
on the ice in the Endurance. The ship was crushed and sank. He had to take to the ice with his men and, and the dogs. They ended up eating the dogs as well as lots scores of penguins and seals and other marine animals. He dragged uh, the James Caird ship, the, sh- the, sh- the ship's boat, uh, across the ice, uh, eventually launching it again to reach Elephant Island with all his men, and then set off in the James Caird, which was only 22 feet long, 800 miles to get to the whaling station on South Georgia. Uh, I mean, the most incredible feat of, uh, uh, of navigation probably since the, the Americas were discovered by, by you know, the Columbus. Uh, anyway, they got there. He then had to scale ice-covered cliffs, uh, you know, <laughs> suffering from mal- nutrition, frostbite, you name it, um, got to the whaling station, but it was another four months before the Chilean Navy could lend him a boat you know, during the First yeah. World War to actually go to uh, Elephant Island and rescue the rest of his crew, but, but none of them died. A fantastic tale, we all know Incredible. it. Incredible. I mean, it's an amazing thing to do now, never mind a hundred years ago. Uh, yeah, and the Times got the scoop because he wrote the letters of the Times. Uh, lovely. Uh, Rose Wild, where are we going next? Frank Muir, uh, 1966. It's a uh, letter which should have changed the world but didn't. And just um, explain for people who don't know. Yes. Frank Muir, an, an amazing character. I mean, it's worth just Googling just to look at the amazing pictures, all moustache and pipes and bow ties. <laughs> he was a huge celebrity at that time, a, a humorist, a writer, a broadcaster, with his uh, other half, Dennis Norden. They were probably the most famous broadcasters. Yes. Of the mid-60s. This is a wonderfully exasperated letter. It's two years after Wilson came to power in 1964 with a majority of only four. And two years later, Wilson decides to have another election. Oh, God, everybody says. Frank Muir writes to the Times, when I was at school, I held the view a view which my headmaster felt himself unable to share, that swatting for exams was a dishonest and immoral practice. I felt that if exams were intended to test how much of the term's curriculum had penetrated one's natural defences, then swatting for those exams would clearly defeat the object. I now hold the view, a view which I'm sure Mr Wilson and Mr Heath will feel themselves unable to share, that attempting to influence voters' minds by election campaigns is similarly a dishonest and immoral practice. Anyway, I don't think this country's economy can any longer afford these squalid, tedious, untruthful, vicious, trivial charades. I suggest that when a general election is called in the future, we all simply trot along to the polls the following Tuesday. (laughs) I think it's a wonderful suggestion. It it is a terrific idea. Uh, But sadly, that is one that did not catch on. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, he probably spoke for lots of people uh, without necessarily... uh, And um, still does. Yeah, it still does. Yeah, it's been a while since we had an election. We've probably had one along along soon uh, uh, as well. Andrew, finally, just to sort of complete the stellar lineup of uh, of letters, we've now got Arthur Conan Doyle writing to the Times. Oh, this, this is a brilliant one. Now, Arthur Conan Doyle was obsessed with many things, including the Channel Tunnel, which he wrote about in the Times uh, a couple of times at least uh, in 1913. It was 81 years before the tunnel opened, but he kept banging this drum repeatedly. And here, here's one of his letters. Um, so I welcome General Talbot's letter dealing with the Channel Tunnel. That the matter seems to me of such importance that I grudge every day that passes without something haven't been done to bring it to a realisation. Built from national funds, this tunnel would in peace be our most valuable asset. While in war with any nation but France, it would vastly increase our strength, both for offensive and defensive purposes. He then lists six advantages, including... 
It would be a, a source of great profit to the country. It would stimulate our trade with the continent. Uh, it would bring many thousands, very many thousands of continental travels every year who are at present deterred by the crossing. And I don't think he had asylum seekers in mind when he wrote that. Uh, we should be, if ever we were forced to send troops to the continent, it provides a safe line of communication besides ensuring an unopposed transit. Uh, and he then goes on and on and on. And finally, he says, six, these six reasons seem to me to be weighty ones. Against them, there is only one that I have ever heard, the fear of invasion. This, of course, can only mean invasion by France, which cannot surely be regarded as a serious danger, although I admit that every defensive precaution should be taken. As to invasion by any other country, it means that they have first to win and then to hold both ends of the tunnel. Such a contingency is, I hold, beyond all bounds of common sense. Yours faithfully, Arthur Conan Doyle, the Athenaeum Club, March the 10th, 1913. <laughs> it just goes to show, you know, we talk about changing history. I mean, he, he, he was right, but like you said, he was 80-odd years ahead of his time. The, you know, Molly's right about Sherlock Holmes. He also dreamt up the, the big support of the, of the Channel Tunnel. So what what are the bit what are the, the slightly madcap ideas currently occupying readers that might come oh. to in eighty years time? Gosh, I suppose that's a big question. <laughs> come back to me in eighty years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Chris has just messaged in saying your big thing on letters is. Oh, he said, actually starts, sir. Uh, your big thing on letters is brilliant. I, I think starting a text message is sir. That might take a while for that to, to catch on. If someone wants to write a letter to the Times these days, Andrew, how do they go about doing it? They should write to letters at thetimes.co.uk. Keep it short. Keep it. Su- Synced, don't waffle and, and uh, attach it, I mean, rather direct it at something we have written in the paper. Don't talk to me about what the Daily Telegraph or, or what's been on Channel 4 that you've seen last night. I'm not interested. I want to know what you think about what we have reported on in the Times. So keep it, keep it under 200 words if you can. And if people want to complain about what's in the Times, how can they get in touch with you, Rose? Oh, well, they write to feedback <laughs> at thetimes.co.uk and they'll get a polite answer. Uh, Rose and I, we share a spread, don't we? We, we do. do share a, share a spread at the t- oh, times on a Saturday. I'm on the right-hand side, Rose on the left-hand side. I write rude things about Lee Anderson, and then Rose deals with complaints about headlines and birds and... What's the... What's the, what's the, what's the <laughs> trains. About, trains. Things, uh, things we get wrong. Uh, sort yeah, of. sometimes or, things we get right. I, when, you, when you tell the <laughs> readers to shut up and clear <laughs> off, uh, that's very much my favourite bit. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.